optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, boys and girls, wombats and squirrels. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, etc., that you can use in your own life. And I'm speaking in hushed tones because I'm in the airport, and I don't like to yell and scream like a lunatic when in the airport, lest I get a boot on my head. So, the guest, Mike Burbiglia. I've wanted to interview Mike for years. You can find him on Twitter at Burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S. He is one of the best known and busiest working comedians in the world, both behind and in front of the camera. His stand-up blends a lot of elements, different elements, theater, film, storytelling, and comedy. This is of interest to me because he's been very deliberate in studying different crafts and tying them together. And this is reflected in his string of successes, which include sold-out tours as a solar theater act. He just did 100 Cities not too long ago. New York Times bestselling books, off-Broadway shows, feature film, TV, and much more. In the last few years, his work has started to appear on This American Life, which is an incredible show and a podcast, for those interested, where he began a meaningful collaboration with 
the host and producer, Ira Glass, who I'd love to have on the podcast at some point. Currently, Mike is the creator, writer, and star of the new film, Don't Think Twice, which is hilarious, heart-rending, just a wonderful watch. I saw an early preview copy and it blew me away. So I highly recommend it. I don't say that lightly. It's a great movie. If you've struggled with notions of feeling like a failure, hoping for success, achieving some degree of success, and then getting more or less than you bargained for, it's it's an incredible journey. So I do recommend you check that out. And how the hell does he pull all of this stuff off? He seems to be juggling a million projects. I aim to find out. We dig into it. So without further ado, please enjoy Mike Berbiglia. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. It's a uh, very exciting and and timely for me to be here, <laughs> and uh, uh, because I, I'm because I'm 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 digging into all of your stuff. I'm immersing myself, and it is affecting my life in real time. So speaking with you is almost a virtual reality experience. Well, I think this is a mutual feeling since I've been a a consumer and fan of your comedy for so long, and I've started thinking after Elon Musk hints that we could be logically speaking players in some sophisticated future entities video game uh, that um, this might all be a virtual reality, uh, albeit a very <laughs> yes. sophisticated one. But if, if I wanted to bring us back to the earth, at least as we understand it for a second, I pinged a number of mutual friends of ours, uh, Brian Koppelman, of course, famed screenwriter, all around good guy, uh, Chris Saka, uh, both of whom have been on the podcast before because they've spent some time with yes. you. And I wanted to ask a number of things that they brought up. So the first was from Koppelman. And I asked very specifically, does he have any obsessions that you know of outside <laughs> of comedy? And one word back, pizza. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. So can you elaborate on this, please? It's such an embarrassing uh, obsession because it's a simple... You know, it's 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 bread and cheese and sauce. I mean, it's a, hearing you say that makes me realize how simple of a human being I am. I have a joke from my first album, Two Drink Mike, which is I love pizza so much I would marry it, but it would just be an elaborate ploy to eat her whole family at the reception. But it's uh, it's so I mean, so stupid. But I yeah, I love pizza. I think it's just you know, it's the simplicity of it. It's from my childhood. It's it, it, there's no deeper meaning other than my, by the time my mom raised me, um, I, that's, that's Freudian saying that because I was raised by my mother and father, but my, my mother was around more often. Um, she really kind of gave up on parenting and ordered pizza a lot. You know, like she didn't want to cook that much. And so she'd just be like, let's just order pizza. So I just got very used to it. And, and now I figure, well, in my adulthood, I might as well be a connoisseur and have good pizza. So what now qualifies for you as good pizza? If you could have one type of pizza delivered to you, and I'm sure there are many options, but uh, is are you a, a deep dish? Are you a New York no. style thin crust? What are we talking? Yeah, yeah. I think there's two kinds of pizza that I like most. One is New York, New York uh, thin crust, uh, coal oven, and um, places like Arturo's and Lucali. Uh, Luzzo. And then I have this odd, you know, from my childhood, just in Massachusetts, there's a ton of Greek pizza. Just there's all these sort of greasy Greek pizzerias that I grew up on. And 
And so I have a fondness for that. Like, so if I'm driving, it's like all through New England. So if I'm driving to my parents' house and, you know, I'll stop in Connecticut, like at the side, like a pizzeria on the side of the road in like a suburb of Connecticut and just get pizza. The the well, then the other one, the other pit stop there is New Haven has extraordinary pizza too. Really? Never would have guessed yeah. in a million years. And now is there something that characterizes Greek pizza other than the fact that it's made by Greeks? Is it the same ingredients or do they do anything particularly? No, no, it's same ingredients. It's just, it, it's just sort of a, it, it's a medium sized crust pizza. Ah. But, but, but I mean, and there's a million theories on pizza. Uh, most people say it's based on, you know, the water. I mean, there's book, there's books and books written about pizza, but you know, that's, people say it's, it's, it's water-based what makes it good, which is why for whatever reason, New York pizza is better, uh, in my opinion, than than most places. And actually, Pete, the reason Koppelman is also bringing that up, I think, is that I would have these readings for my film, Don't Think Twice, at my house to workshop the film script the way that I would work, I workshop my stand-up. And I would always, ha I would have over people like Brian Koppelman, Michael Weber, you, you know, like uh, Phil Lord came to one of them, Nicole Howell Center, and I would always have the best pizza. Like I'd have Lucali or I'd have Luzzo, and I would say at the beginning of the reading, the script might be bad, but at the end, we're all going to eat pizza. And so, <laughs> it's, like, it's like dealing with the grade schoolers. <laughs> It is like dealing with great schools, but it's a great incentive. I always urge people, I always urge like screenwriters or anyone who needs feedback on their work to just invite people to something where you give them something, to give them food, give them ice cream, give them pizza, and, and try and solicit their feedback because feedback, I think, is the most valuable thing you can have for your writing. So let's let's talk about well two things since they came up the the movie first of all I I was very excited to get a a sneak peek I suppose early access on sure. Vimeo and uh, I'm only a half hour in but I've I've loved it I watched it actually with a uh, friend and also former podcast guest uh, Cal Fussman who wrote oh, the uh, What I Learned column or a large portion of it for decades for Esquire and we both after. Uh, watching the portion we watched because I had to jump on the phone to to do this interview. Uh, number one, he said, well, you should skip ahead to see the end so that you can discuss it with Mike. And and I said, no, no, no. I want to actually, I want to watch the rest of the movie, the entire movie right. tonight. Yes. So I was very uh, pleased and relieved that the movie is really, really good. And it, it made me, I'm going to digress here because that's my style. But sure. many moons ago, I actually took one and it was the only improv class at a place called Bobino Casting in San Francisco. I remember it. It brought wow. back memories. And it made me want to go take improv classes as well as go see good improv. Yeah. Uh, but so that's, so the the Don't Think Twice, I, I would highly recommend people check out. And uh, Sokka loves it as well. And it gets better, by the way. And, and it gets I, better. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even through nice kind of act one. Yeah. I, I'm, it's nice that you haven't seen the whole thing because I can dance around things and so that the listeners don't, aren't spoiled on things and but but yeah it gets better but yeah. what one of the comments that came up from cal and i concurred was that the writing was really good so i want to talk about the workshopping what is the format like could you explain how you workshop the material and in in what at what stage do you workshop it i conceived this idea um my first film was called sleepwalk with me and it's um people want to see it it's on netflix it's easy to find and uh 
And after I made it, I I went back to improvising at UCB Theater after years of kind of taking time off from improv. I'd studied it in college, et cetera. And the reason I went back to it is because UCB ups uh, upright Upper citizens brigade theater yes, right. in New York and, and Los Angeles actually. And the reason I went back to it is because I realized that so many of the principles, probably the similar, you know, the, the principles that uh, that you see at the beginning of the movie and that you probably studied in your class, um, say yes, it's all about the group. Don't think, you know, just do. And um, all those principles are really what got me through directing a film, which was the hardest thing by far I've ever done in my entire life. And I, after I directed it, I was like, how the hell did I even live through that? Like, how did I even stay alive? And I realized that it was all these things in improv that had taught me that. And so I veered back into doing improv. And one night my wife, who's, who's brilliant, came to one of my improv shows and she made this observation and I thought it was wonderful, which is she goes, it's because you know, I think it was on that on that given night. It was like it's it, guest improvisers sit in with me. This show called Mike Birbiglia's Dream, and any given week it'll be like A.D. Bryant from SNL or Ellie Kemper from Kimmy Schmidt or like you know Zach Woods from the Silicon Valley. And and she said, my wife said, it's amazing watching this art form with these people because. It's all about the group and how everyone's equal, but in real life, that person's a TV star, that person's a movie star, and that person shares a one-bedroom in Bushwick with five dudes who live on air mattresses. And I thought, man, that's not just a great observation. It's a whole movie. I mean, that is a whole movie to me. And I could just see the movie. And I started just writing out just this really kind of throw-up, what I call what I'd call a throw-up pass. Of the of the movie script, I would go to coffee shops in the morning uh, for three. My minimum's three hours. I stick myself in a coffee shop with no internet and uh, no email, no anything. And then if it's going well, I go up to five hours. And if it's not going well, I I just end at three hours. But and then I would. So sorry then, to sorry to interrupt. What time sure. do you have a do you have a time that you've generally used for that? A I try to do, do, I, try do, you, do I try to do seven a.m. I try to do I try to write before my inhibitions take hold of me. Ah, right. So I almost try, I always, I always say write, because I'm an actor as well, I always say write in a trance and act in a trance. Like it's almost like you, you don't even want to think consciously about what you're putting on the page for fear of, oh, you wrote this down in your book. You, you write them as emails to people. Um, right. And, and I think that's such a brilliant is that that's in your book, right? Yeah, no, it is. And just for people who don't have that context, I or I might have talked about it in an interview, perhaps, where I said that I I basically threw out the first few drafts of four or five chapters of the four hour work week because it was either too pompous or too slapstick, and then I decided yes. to literally go into an email compose window and write the first chapter as if it were just a letter to a close friend after me having had two drinks. That was basically and the that, that's so That's so brilliant. And a lot of times what I do is I'll write in my journal um, as though it'll never be seen by anyone ever. And then more often than not, the things I put in my secret journal are the things that, that I, 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 I publish. And when you sit down at the coffee shop 7 a.m. or just beforehand, a couple of things. Do you have a particular type of coffee or beverage and then do you use word do you use uh, i do a ca i do a cappuccino and i do magic movie magic screenwriter is the program i use or 
I write in a notebook by hand. I try, I, I try to write as much in my hand in an, in a, like a nice notebook that I'll, you know, that has some meaning to me. Sometimes I'll have my friends, like one, once I was on, last summer I was on tour for the movie Trainwreck and with Dave Attell and Amy Schumer and Vanessa Bayer. And it was my birthday and Dave Attell got me a, a journal. Like it was really sweet. He's, you know, he just, he just like gave me a little gift for my birthday. He bought an, we were in Seattle on tour. Gave me a nice journal. That's really and nice. I said, one, of my, one of my favorite stand-up comics. Never had any interaction with him, but really off, amazing. Yeah, one of, one of the greats. And, and I asked him if he would sign it on the, just on the back somewhere. And so he, I have like a Dave Attell notebook. And so it's sort <laughs> Signature of- Signature series. I, well, I think of it as like, it's, ble- <laughs> I, it's blessed. You know, oh, like sometimes when people ask me, like sometimes people ask me to sign their notebook and I'll write like, I bless these jokes. And then I'll write my name or whatever. <laughs> like, I, with my friends, like- um, it, you know, Andrew, Andrew Dost, who's a musician um, who's in the band Fun, he came to see my off-Broadway show, Thank God for Jokes, and he actually brought me a journal, like, as a gift, and, and I asked him if he would sign it, and so he wrote this, like, nice note, and I think I, there's something about the personal element and the personal relationship with notebooks that I think can, can be helpful to the writing. A couple of really, I, I guess, perhaps mundane questions, but I'm curious nonetheless. Movie Magic Screenwriter, why do you use that instead of, say, a Final Cut or something like that? God, it's so stupid. I mean, I'm I'm a real wonk with screenwriting, and uh, like I, I listen to the Script Notes podcast with Craig Mazin and John August, and those guys just, <laughs> they despise Final Cut. They just despise it. Um, and Or, I'm sorry, Final Draft. Oh Sorry. yeah, you know what? I always mix those up. That was I just incepted you with the wrong information. Sorry. Yes, final draft. Final draft. But um, and but anyway, a few years ago, I stumbled across movie magic, and I like it. And there's no there's no good reason necessarily. But so I write, and actually, this is a real quirk that I rarely admit to anyone, never mind in public. To get to finish the script, I found that I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, and I was analyzing my habits, and I was like, I'm putting that. I'm putting off writing this script. But I'm not putting off, you know, having lunch with Brian Koppelman or you know, having with <laughs> my brother or whatever. And so I, I thought, well, I'm always on time and I always show up to things. So why don't I do that for myself? And so what I did was I put a note, a handwritten note next to my bed that said, Mike, and it has three exclamation points. Mike, you have a meeting at <laughs> Cafe Pedlar. That's where I was writing. Uh, at 7 a.m. with your mind, which is so stupid. <laughs> uh, it's so embarrassing to admit, but it works. But if it, it works, it I, works. I was like, yeah, if it works, it works. I was like, well, I, ha- I have a meeting. It doesn't matter that it's with myself, but it's a meeting and I have to be on time. I love that. I love it. The, the, the human mind is such an odd amalgamation <laughs> of sensical and nonsensical behaviors. I just love yeah. it. When you brain vomit, so I vomited those the, the the script out in a few weeks. Is it scenes? Do you start with just stream of consciousness lines you want to include? And yes, that, that's exactly right. And and it, it goes from stream of consciousness. I'd like to see a scene of this. I'd like to see a scene of this. I'd like to hear this piece of dialogue. I wrote down like I had I corkboard my walls. Like it's it's silly when you see my office. It's just like a wall of corkboard. And one of the 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 three by fives I put up, I put up all of these mind writing slogans, which you can look up, you know, things like quotes from, you know, there's a Ezra Pound quote that I have in my wall that literally three words. I think it's one of the best quotes for her writing. Only emotion endures. 
And I always try to keep that in mind when I'm writing, because I think that that's, that's just a really crucial idea. Now, when you said mind writing quotes? Yeah, that's, that's um, mind writing quotes. It's, it's, there's, they're just these kind of, like, you know, you can do Googles for like mind writing quotes. And it's like quotes from writers collected over time uh, by famous writers. And, and you can, um, you know, they're written up and, uh, you know, there's like, li- like you look around and there's like lines from Hemingway and there's r- lines from George Orwell and Jack Kerouac. And, and um, it was funny because it was something that um, Elna Baker, who's, who's a producer in This American Life, actually gave me as a tip when I was writing my book, Sleepwalk With Me and Other Painfully True Stories. She said, she said I had, when I wrote my book, she said I, I had all these mind writing slogans on the wall and I, and I used it and it, it, it's real. I, I find it to be really, really helpful. So only uh, emotions endures. Was that the quote? Only emotion endures. Emotion. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means is, a lot of times, writer as a writer, you get hung up on you get hung up on uh, cultural references. You know, a lot of times, like a, if you see a comedian, a lot of times the the way that I lose interest in, in comedians, for example or sitcoms or, or movies or whatever is that it, it gets, it gets hung, like they get hung up on like a cultural reference, mm-hmm. a joke about a cultural reference that literally will be gone in, in four years or five years. Like what, you know, there's a reference to Twitter in my movie and, and don't think twice. And I was very cautious to think through the implications of in 10 years when twi- Twitter no longer exists, uh, or is or becomes the MySpace of the future? Will that reference make sense to the viewer and uh, advance the story? And and because you know that I, I we always have to think in those terms. Like there's a part of Sleepwalk with Me, the movie, where my character is figuring out how to drive to uh, one of his gigs, and and he uses Google Maps, and it's like a very key visual. And I had to think like okay, what's going to be the mapping system of the future? And then like, will people be able to grasp what this mapping system is in relation to the story? In in other words, like if you get too hung up on sort of making jokes or your sort of cultural jokes about, you know, um, things that might go away, then that whole five minutes of the movie is sort of dead in a way. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's at risk ephemera, right? I mean, when you have that topical hook. Yeah, yeah, and so and so my, with this movie, it, it was really about like what is this about? It's about friends, and so when it's it's about a group of friends coping with what it's like to be in their thirties and confront the idea that they might not be successful the way they thought they were going to be successful in life, and what does that mean? What does that mean for their lives? What does it mean for their friendships? And so it was it was about like whenever it would veer into something that was like a cultural reference, I would be like, no, 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 let's pull it back to, it's about friends. And, and so that's what I mean by mind writing slogans. And then I would have also on the wall, like things that felt like principles for the movie. Like I would, I wrote, like when my wife made the observation about how everyone's equal on stage, but off stage, they're completely unequal. Um, I wrote on the wall, this thing I made up, which is art is socialism, but life is capitalism. And that was like, like a guide, that's a guiding <laughs> principle for the film, which is like, like that. how is that, how can that be a conflict between these friends? You should, you should add your own quote to the, 
the mind writing quotes collection. <laughs> well, you know, you know who bites me on that is uh, Bernie supporters. <laughs> they, go, they go, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. And I, yeah, I, I, I get their point. I get their point. <laughs> so the now. At what point then do you invite your friends over and ply them with pizza? What, so, what, what, what form, like how rough is it when you give it to them? Probably about two months in. It was, yeah, I started writing uh, two years ago in end of April. And then like June, it was like June 10th, I had people over. And so it was like two months in draft and I had people over. And I said, you know, I preface it. I say it's, it, may, it might not be good and thanks for coming. And. Those ended up, I had like 10 or 12 of those at my house. They ended up being some of the most fun part of the process um, entirely because it's, uh, it, you know, it, because there's, there's really no stakes to showing your friends your work. I mean, it feels like there's stakes. I was very nervous and, and you know, but, but there, it's just, there's something communal about it. There's something fun about it. And do you do a table read? Do you have people take roles or do they just all read yeah, in so, silence and then give you feedback? How does it work? No, no, no. So I, re I have them read it aloud. And um, like I would have my assistant at the time, Greg, would read the screen directions and, and a bunch, I would assign parts and I would highlight the scripts for people. And then we'd read it aloud. And then we'd eat pizza and we'd just kind of talk about uh, the, what, what it made us feel like. You know, my, my, the, the director of, my one person shows is this guy named Seth Barish. He's a really brilliant theater director. And he um, he always does this thing dramaturgically, which is... Ooh, good word. He will listen to... I will pitch him what I'm working on, what my idea is, or a piece of writing. I even did it this week because I was asked to write a, a piece for a storytelling event in Nantucket Film Festival. And I read it to him over the phone. And, so he, and then he says back to me, well, what I get from that is this and it's like this not a non-judgmental way of interfacing with a collaborator so so in other words you know i i give him he reads this script and then he says you know well what i get from it is it's a group of friends and you know one of them ends up being more successful than the other and then they're all trying to figure out what they're doing with their lives and so if that's if he says that back to me and I think to myself, well, no, it's more, it's more than that. It's actually about this, 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 and this. And he says, well, that's not what I got from it. It's actually helpful to the process because it's, I think one of the most important things about writing is that, that you, that people are getting what you're intending. Like I listened to an interview with Ron Howard where he was talking about how he, he shows his movie to tons of test audiences. and it's not so that they can tell him what the vision for the movie should be in the rough cut form, but it's to find out whether his vision is landing with people. And if it's not landing and if they're not, he's not, then he's not conveying it correctly. And he goes back and re reworks it a lot. So that's how, that's how I like to think of the screenplay process. And what I like to do is I, I like to work outside, like what I'm doing essentially in my living room in, you know, in my little shabby apartment in Brooklyn is basically what they're doing on like the hundred million dollar level in Hollywood with tons more money and fancier offices and, and to, that it's quote unquote development in Hollywood. They develop these screenplays for years and years and years. And it's all these executives giving notes 
But I don't want executives to give notes to me. I want writers to give notes to me, and I want yeah. actors to give notes. I want collaborators who actually do do the things that I like and 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 who I aspire to be like. I bring I like invite people over who are way better writers than me. Like I I have no business like getting notes from Phil Lord, you know, who's the director of you know Twenty One Jump Street and you know the Lego Movie. Like he's just like a brilliant, brilliant mind, but. Who cares? I'm just going to ask him to come. If he doesn't want to come, that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and do you generally say go through a five minute scene in its entirety, and then people do a post mortem and give their uh, their thoughts, or will, will will they read a line and then say, you know what, like that, my character wouldn't say that. That's weird. It sounds stilted. Like how do you how do you actually uh, facilitate? We read it start to finish, so we read it as though it's a table, like a table read for for a sitcom or, or a movie. Got it. And th- and then at the end, we just kind of adjourn, and you know, some fiery discussions start. You know, a lot of people give their thoughts, and and they really conflict with other people's thoughts, and those people fight with each other. And I listen to that, and it's it's really helpful. So you don't swear on stage, uh, generally, as I understand it. Although True. Saka said one or two funny exceptions, perhaps. <laughs> and in the uh, recent and in the recent show, Think Up for Jokes, I actually dissect why I don't curse gratuitously on stage and and why in some ways in the Thank God for Jokes show I departed from that a, a, a little bit which I can explain yeah please please explain because for instance I've been I, I'm an avid consumer of stand-up love it and have have I've heard for instance dirty Jim Gaffigan but he, <laughs> he, he is he's largely sanitized uh, mm-hmm. but he can often pull it off, right? And so what is your logic behind uh, your approach? My logic was, it started off in in kind of an embarrassing way, which is to say that my parents were very upset that I was going to pursue comedy. Uh, they, I, uh, My mom, my, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. Those are professions where people help other people and are ashamed of their artistic children. And, and uh, <laughs> so, but my mom was so upset when I was moving to New York and, and she said, just don't become one of those dirty comedians. And I said, okay. And she said, you don't have to use those words to be funny. For example, Oprah's very funny. And I was like, mom, I'm not sure you, you understand my goal. I'm not, trying, <laughs> I'm not trying to be the queen of daytime, but you know, it's stick, it stuck with me because, you know, you want to make your parents happy. You, you, you know, you, you want to pursue your goals, but you're also, you know, these people gave you everything. And so you have to heed, you should heed that to some extent. And so I've tried not to curse for a lot of years. Um, but I do, I do feel conflicted about that sometimes because a lot of comedians I admire most did curse on stage, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor. And then some of them who famously don't curse are secretly criminals. Um, and, uh, <laughs> reference, but, uh, but yeah. And so, and so I, I'm somewhere in between that. I will say that I don't curse gratuitously more often as, 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 as word choice than it is to sanitize it for people who object for, uh, you know, uh, Christian reasons about words. Like, like I, I have no problem. I curse a lot, quite a bit in my life, but I, but when you're a writer, I think that word choice is important. I think word variety is important. So if you say, I don't know if you curse on the podcast, but if I you, do, if, I do occasionally, but I try not so to be if you, egregious. If you say that, if you say the F word, you know, 75 times in an hour, 
that's poor word choice. Like you're it not is. being creative. It, it's lazy. Yeah. It's lazy. It's like it's, using the adjective interesting as a modifier for everything. Ah, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, there's this brilliant film that uh, calls out uh, that point at, at, at the festival. It's called Captain Fantastic. And it's coming out, I think, maybe in September. Is this with Viggo Mortensen? It is. It I've, is. I've yes. heard a, so, a friend of mine saw a screener and said it was fantastic. I haven't. Wonderful. But it's but it's a it's a father who raises his family in sort of the woods, like off the grid, so to speak, in Washington State, and he he won't let the kids say the word interesting because it doesn't mean anything. And I it's actually it called it 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 made me reconsider that as a word choice and and try to banish it from my vocabulary. But but anyway, the point is is that the F word is not. I don't think the F word is is effective as a monologist unless you're using it to 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 the right effect to the good to the good effect for those who are interested in delving into the etymology and various uses of the word fuck which is in fact very flexible there is a book called english as a second fucking language that That's goes <laughs> that is a, a fantastic short read i think it has a quote i might be making this up from stephen king don't sue me stephen uh on the front or some huge name uh who do you run jokes by um I run them by primarily audiences. Is uh, I go out and I bomb with jokes, and I, and I see what lives. I, I you know, and and then um, also my brother Joe. My brother Joe took me to introduce me to comedy when I was a kid. He, I was he was a senior in high school. I was in eighth or ninth grade, and I was helping him write these satire issues of the newspaper. And then, so that was sort of my introduction to comedy. And then he took me to see Stephen Wright live. And um, that changed my life. That was when I was in high school. And, and it just changed the way I thought about everything. It was like an epiphany moment of like, oh, I want to do that. That's what I can do. And I started writing in my notebook. And I wrote all these kind of Stephen Wright ripoff jokes. And then <laughs> <laughs> really. and 24-hour like, banking. Who has time for no, that? Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I went to a, I went, I went to a, a drive-in movie in a cab. Movie cost me $95. <laughs> <laughs> they're just great. I mean, they're just endlessly great if people are interested in that type of joke. Another great joke writer in that vein is Mitch Hedberg, who I'm sure oh, people are more familiar yeah. with. So um, good. But, uh, but anyway, so once I saw Stephen Wright, I was like, oh, this is over. I'm doing this. And then when I was in college, I entered a stand-up comedy contest, and, and I won, and so it got me the chance to perform at the DC Improv, and then I got a job sort of working the door at the DC Improv. And... Uh, and and uh, but the point is is that my brother Joe and, and I always would kick around jokes like ever since you know I was like 19 years old and and now he he's worked for me or he's he's worked with me we we run our production company for the last 10 years together I I like poached him from being an ad copywriter because he he had gone sort of the route that my parents had wanted me to go and I veered into comedy and then I sort of brought him along when I was able to financially do that pulled him to the dark side. I pulled him to the dark side and he's, uh, yeah, he's an extraordinary writer. And, uh, and so I run everything by him, but, but the big, big thing is also like I run, you know, I run stuff by Ira Glass when we're working on something for this American life. I run stuff by Seth Barish when we're working on something for one of my one person shows and then my wife quite a bit. And then audiences, I mean, audiences are the, the big determiner of what is worth saying. A lot of times if you're in front of, and when I say audiences, I don't mean it doesn't have to be 2000 people. I mean, you know, 10 people at the comedy cellar on 
two in the morning. I, I can understand whether a bit is going to work, you know, for five years. I love watching comedians work on material, and I've seen a number of them with notepads who are friends of mine working on material and they apologize after the fact. And I'm like, no, are you kidding me? Like, this is what I want to see. I can always yeah. see the finished product on HBO or wherever it ends up coming out. This is the in-process stuff that I want to see. Me too. I love it. And so, so let me dig into some of the details and see if there's anything to discuss. So the process of eliciting feedback, when you pass something by someone, let's just say it's, it's comedy and you're talking to Ira Glass or someone like that, are there any particular questions that you ask? And the reason I bring that up is that when I have my friends who are writers proofread my writing, let's say for a book, I ask them first to highlight anything that is confusing. <laughs> That's good. Like whether they, or unclear. Like it, I, I, whether yes. they love or hate something is secondary to clarity, right? And as long as it's clear, they can hate it, but I want them to understand what I'm saying. And then... Yes. It, it kind of goes on from there. Well, that's, sim that's similar to the Ron Howard idea. Of, is, what, is what I'm creating being conveyed the way that I meant for it to be conveyed? Right. And in, so in your case, you know, Ira is a, a brilliant man, but not yeah. a comedian as far as I can tell, although he has yeah. his moments no, of being funny, funny, certainly. Yeah. Uh, with someone like Ira or anyone else, like how do you, is there a particular way that you elicit feedback to make it as helpful as possible? I usually, um, I usually do it. I, I'll tell people bits and jokes over the phone, um, partly because they can sort of <clears throat> peacefully, uh, <laughs> peacefully give feedback in a way that doesn't feel so judgmental. Where when you're face to face with somebody, it can be hard to to say a joke to them and ha have them feel the pressure of, oh, I, I should laugh or I should politely respond. Mm -hmm. On the phone, it's pretty easy to just kind of like skim through stuff. And I can hear, I can hear when people are interested by what I'm seeing said. You know, Quentin Tarantino often, I, I've, I've read this, Quentin Tarantino will call people endlessly and pitch the movies that he's working on. And he says he doesn't even have to hear the laughter, he can, he can hear in their silence what their interest level is. <laughs> That's, it's like the, uh, the silence whisperer. <laughs> exactly. But I, there's some truth to that. Like when you pitch people, if you pitch stuff to people all the time, after a while, you kind of get the sense of like, are they hooked or are they not? If they're not hooked, you're, you should consider another direction. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tarantino is a fascinating case. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast sometime in the next six to 12 months, which I think could happen. Uh, why do you think, and this is a very broad question, why did you make it, so to speak, in a business where very few people do? Uh, you, you've, you've reached a level of success across uh, several different art forms, but let's just look at comedy and the various iterations of that. What were the decisions you made or chance encounters or mentors or whatever it might be that contributed to you making it, at least that being the perception, certainly? When I was 19, I had a bladder tumor and I was, um, I, I, it was ended up being, they, they caught it early. It was a malignant tumor. And so for the next, every three months for the next like five years, I would have to go for a cystoscopy where they would look inside my bladder and see if 
the cancer had returned and it didn't. I was very, very lucky. You know, I'm, you know, it's like almost 20 years later and I go for cystoscopy like every now every like two years or so. But that at this exact same time that I had this kind of life threatening uh, ailment happen, I started to do comedy and I, I entered a contest and I won and I, I got this job at the DC Improv and I would watch every comedian who would come through the DC Improv and I would watch you know, and, and the variety actually was really helpful. It's like I, I saw Larry the Cable Guy before he was a stadium act. Like I saw, you know, Dave Chappelle before he was the Chappelle show and George Lopez and Margaret Cho and Kathleen Madigan, Brian Regan, Jake Johansson, Jim Gaffigan, all these people. And I watch all of them and I would try to just bug them with questions. And so I was I had this kind of education in watching a ton of comedy and going to open mics and trying comedy at the exact same time where I had this realization from cancer that, that life is short, like, and it, and, and can end, you know, and it can end at any time. And it's like, and, and it's in some ways, the best thing that ever happened to me was, was that, um, perspective because I became an absolute workaholic, um, trying to get, good fast like i wanted to become a really great stand-up comedian really fast um and and so i feel like that that's the thing that there's this comedian tommy jonagan who who started in the midwest and i remember he opened for me one time when when he was in college and now he's you know he's been on letterman a lot of times and he's he's got a great career but when he opened for me like when he was in college he like i had done stand-up like once or twice and he quoted this back to me years later and he said, he goes, you gave me this piece of advice when I, like the moment I started. Um, and it's, it's what made me sort of help, help me create what I've created as a career, which is if you want to perform five minutes of good comedy, write what you think is three hours of great comedy and, and, and because that's the ratio that it, it's going to be you're going to you're going to write about three hours of what you think is great and that about five minutes of that's worth worth showing an audience that's a that's a good quote and i remember uh reading at some point i don't recall who it was i want to say neil gaiman but that's just because i have a secret infatuation, not so secret infatuation <laughs> with Neil Gaiman. Uh, so this is something helpful that I want to attribute to him somehow, which was a writer talking about process and discussing the frustration of, say, writing nine or 10 pages and only having one or two paragraphs at the end be worthwhile and feeling, oh, yeah. and feeling like the first nine pages were a waste of time, but then right. emphasizing no, in fact, you needed those first nine pages so that you could produce the two paragraphs that are of use. Not only, yeah, not only that, I mean, that's a brilliant way of looking at it. Not only that, everything that you do in your life, I, I've realized over the years, is leading to where you are. So, so in other words, like the fact that when I was in college, I, I worked at the door of the DC Improv and brought food to people's tables. And then I was a waiter at the tombs when I was in college. And then I was a, you know, I was a, 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 a temp in New York City at a pharmaceutical company. All of that actually led to the life experience that would be able to put something on the page that feels real. Um, there's a, I went to a, a, a little talk 
at the Nantucket Film Fest this morning with Oliver Stone. And the thing that I wrote down in my notebook from it, my takeaway was he, when he was like 20 years old, he wrote, I think, a novel and it got rejected like all over New York City, like every publisher for like two years. Like he tried to get published for like two years. And then he joined the army. And when he got out of the army, um, he, because of the GI Bill, was able to go to film school and then he made films. And what he talks about is that it was the army that taught him to become self-reliant in a way that allowed him to understand how to make films, which is a completely, he, he goes, the army is what took me out of my head and made me understand that it's not about being just cerebral. It's about being a combination of cerebral and self-reliant and being able to survive, you know, in the forest or, or whatever it is. And, and that's sort of what went into this, you know, epic film career that Oliver Stone has had. And, and I think that that's, that's worth considering in this discussion. So given that, which I agree with, and how old are you now, Mike, if you don't mind me asking? I'm, I just turned 38 this week. Well, happy birthday. So <laughs> if you were going to give advice or could give advice to your 20-year-old self, 25 or 30, so you can pick, if you could just, <laughs> you, you could place us you know, what you were doing, where you were, what advice would you give to yourself, if any? I would say, write everything down because it's all very fleeting. Keep, I would say, keep a journal, which I have, but I, I would be, I would have been more meticulous. And then I would say, don't, don't bow to the gatekeepers at at the head of, in my case, show business, but at the gate of of of, of any of any business or any endeavor, don't bow to the gatekeepers because I think in essence, there are no gatekeepers. I think that, that you are the gatekeeper. I like that. It has a vaguely Ghostbusters ring to it also. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it's bizarrely true yeah. now in history. When you totally. look at Completely where we agree. are in, in film and television and the internet, I mean, there's this there's this amazing quote. I think it's at the end of um, Hearts of Darkness, which is the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, um, wh where I think it's in the end credits or it's one of the final things Francis Ford Coppola, pretty sure in the 70s, said that the the best movies in the future, because of the way that technology is moving, the best movies are going to be made by like a kid, I'm, I'm remembering just from memory, but like roughly like a kid in Ohio who picks up a camera and, and starts shooting something like that's That's where technology, technology is going to be democratized and, and is and has been now um, in, in a way that's unprecedented for, for film, certainly. Oh, well, even, and, and, I mean, across the board, I mean, you have kids who are programming and piecing together autonomous cars in their garages. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really unbelievable. Although, as the technology or despite the technological changes, much like the quote on your wall, emotions and doers, the yes. core components of good storytelling, I don't think are going to change all that much. No, no. And as a matter of fact, I would say the same thing for my sort of 20 year old self is like, is like, don't, don't uh, don't waste your time 
on marketing, just try to get better. Yes, great advice. I remember uh, a blogger very early on, I think it was Robert Scoble actually said to me, uh, good content is the best SEO. So kind of the equivalent of writing online, which is everybody's trying to optimize for search engine results. And he's like, just put out good content. People will link to it. Yes. And, and that is how you get found. It's, 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 be, it's, it's not about, and also it's not about being good. It's about being great. Because what I find the, the older I get is like a lot of people are good. Definitely. And like a lot of people are smart and a lot of people are clever, but not a lot of people give you their soul when they perform. True. Yes. Very, very true. So when you, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? I, I'm going to, I'll say a political and non-political answer because I, if people dislike this person, then I, it kind of goes one in, in the air out the other. Barack Obama. <laughs> the, um, Barack Obama to me is, uh, is very inspiring. He, he came from, uh, nothing. Uh, he came, you know, and he, um, didn't, he became president. He's the president of the United States. He, um, doesn't have, (laughs) this is, I feel like lost on culture. A lot of times he doesn't have to be like, he, he doesn't have to be the president. He could be like an extremely wealthy anything. Like he could be on Wall Street. He could be a corporate lawyer. He could be anything that he could be in Silicon Valley. He could do anything that would make one, a person billions of dollars. And he chose to be in work and service as a country. That being said, um, and, and I met him, I met him at the 75th anniversary of the USO last month, which was, really cool. Um, but then I met him two years ago when my wife was pregnant and, um, and I, we asked him, we, our whole thing was when we, whenever we meet someone who we know doesn't care about meeting us, we always try, my wife and I always try and come up with like a trick question that throws them off. And like, they kind of have to answer or (laughs) have to think about it. Like I, I give this advice to people. It's like, if you ever see Jimmy Fallon on the street, don't be like, uh, I love the Tonight Show. Just be like, what do you think of Kiwi? You know what I mean? Like, and <laughs> he, he won't be able to not be like, oh, I love Kiwi. You know, like, just talk to people about a thing they didn't think they were going to talk about. And then next thing you know, you're talking to Jimmy Fallon about Kiwi, and then you'll have that for your life. But so, so what I, so, so my thing, our thing with Obama was, Let's tell him because my wife is four months pregnant, but we hadn't told anybody yet. Is why don't we tell him that you're pregnant? And so when we get to the front, I go, Mr. President, this is my wife Jen. She's newly pregnant, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> and and he and he couldn't help the fuck the president of the United States couldn't help to be like, well, am I the first to know? <laughs> And, and my wife says, yes. Yeah. She goes, do you have any parenting advice? And he goes, um, we'll get some sleep. And we were like, ha, 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 because he's the president. You know, because uh, he, you know, it's like, wasn't that funny comedically, but he's like your boss times a million. And then he goes, <laughs> but it got better because he goes, oh, no, actually, I got something. He goes, uh, when you bring him home, he goes, uh, he goes, when you bring him home, the poo, the president said poo. And the moment he said poo, I thought this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> like I could die right now and I'd be fine. 
He goes, when you bring them home, the poo doesn't smell. It doesn't smell like adult poo. Adult poo smells bad. And then he looked at me for affirmation. I was like, absolutely, <laughs> Mr. President. Adult poo does indeed smell terrible. Thank you for inviting me to the poo summit 2015. And so, um, and he goes, and, and when you bring them home, he goes, babies crave structure. And they're eating and they're sleeping. And, uh, and, uh, and he goes, and if it doesn't, you know, if in the breastfeeding doesn't always work out right away, can be a little bit wonky. Don't freak out. And if it doesn't work out with the sleeping right away, don't freak out. And and he paused and he thought about it and he goes, that's actually some pretty good advice. <laughs> he complimented his own advice. But I'm telling you, the best thing to do is you got to give people questions they don't, well, you're doing it right now. You, you got to give people questions that they're not expecting. Um, and then and then my, my non-political answer, if people hate Obama, I get it, whatever, you're Republican, I don't care. You know, like it's it, that's your issue, but um, would be Bob Dylan would be sort of the, the uh, I, I think Bob Dylan is the great artist of our time because unlike the Rolling Stones or you know the Beatles obviously broke up but and some of them died but um the, but he he continues to grow and learn and produce and to change and so I think that for that it's like time out of mind is a top five album, Bob Dylan album of all time. And he made it, you know, what, what in his sixties, you know, it's like, it's unbelievable. And he made, and he made free will and Bob Dylan when he's like 21 years old. And it's unbelievable. That is, uh, yeah. When you've been doing it for three or four decades, it's you're, you've definitely passed the once you're lucky, twice you're good stage. Yes. The, Next question, I feel like, has to be out of left field for this to function after that incredible Obama story. <laughs> so let me try a question that I've been dying to ask someone, but I, I feel like you might be game for this. Uh, which I, What are your rules for good sex? Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Um, the standard thing that uh, Captain Fantastic has this piece of advice in it, which I thought is, is smart, where the father says to the son, when you make love to a woman, uh, be gentle. And, uh, and I think he says, be gentle and listen. And I think that's wise. I think that's good advice. Um, I think, uh, I think you should have sex, uh, assuming that it, your, it, your wife or girlfriend wants this, uh, the, more than you think you should <laughs> because it's 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 kind of like pizza like it's never a bad idea <laughs> so maybe yeah man i mean you could even you could even add that to the list of incentives for your friends when they're proofreading i guess i mean and the script might not be good, but at the end, we're all going to have sex. <laughs> that's right. Oh, my God. If, that, if that's the qualification for the next reading series, that will get so many people in the door. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I had a, a joke on my first album, which is pizza's like sex. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it gets on your shirt. Uh, <laughs> it's honestly the dumbest joke, but I still enjoy saying it. Is there a book... Uh, that you've given or books as uh, frequently as gifts? I give people the DVD. I, I give a book sometimes, but I uh, more often I give a DVD of um, Stop Making Sense. 
not familiar uh, with that. It is the David Byrne concert film with the talking heads uh, that Jonathan Demme directed, I think, in the early 80s. And it's just a really innovative, strange concert film um, that's very much worth watching and, uh, and taking in in a creative sense because it's so unorthodox. I mean, it's called Stop Making Sense in it. And musically, it pays off, I think. And I think visually, it pays off because um, it's very abstract. So that's the one thing I give. The other thing is just I give this book called the people ask me about my sleepwalking all the time because I have obviously a very serious sleep disorder where it almost killed me. And so I give this book called The Promise of Sleep. And it was written by Dr. William C. Dement, who is the father of sleep medicine in, in this you know, decade or, or even century. And it um, makes a cameo in my movie, Sleepwalk With Me, as himself. But it's a wonderful book. And people often say to me, because of my sleep disorder, what should I do? I have insomnia, blah, blah, blah. I always say, well, get, first of all, get this book. And second of all, the basic takeaway for starters is, you know, an hour or two before bed, turn off your phone, turn off your computer, um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, I forget what the third one is, but, the, but, 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 uh, yeah, that, that, that's the biggest thing is like, think of, don't cr think of sleep as something that you don't crash into, but that you ease into like that you, that you're parking the car as opposed to crashing the car. <laughs> <parking space. laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, I like that. I like that analogy. Uh, any other favorite movies or documentaries? I love, um, Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News are two James L. Brooks films that I can just watch over and over and over again. And um, that and th th those are really the, 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 you know, when I made Don't Think Twice, when I make Sleepwalk With Me, and when I make hopefully the next eight or nine movies, I, I strive for to make movies like those where you're laughing and, and you're crying. Because to me, that's what... That's what all of it is for. It's to experience the range of emotions within an hour and a half or two hours. If you so on on that point, if you could combine three comedians, alive or dead, into <laughs> one super comedian, yeah, <laughs> who, who who would you pick? Okay, so it would go something like this. It would go Mitch Hedberg. I'm writing this down on a pad. Mitch Hedberg, Doug Stanhope, Maria Bamford. So. Mitch Hedberg, I think, is the greatest joke writer of our time. I think Doug Stanhope is the most honest comedian of our time. And I think Maria Bamford is the most um, vocally and physically versatile. Unbelievable. Comedian. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean I, I just think what she does is uncanny. I mean, she drops into these voices that are just like these, these completely vivid, pitch-perfect impressions of people in her life. And it's, it's, it's uncanny. And so I, I would say those three. That's a great question, by the way. I've never gotten that question. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to have to dig in. So I know Hedberg. I know Maria Banford. I haven't explored Doug Stanhope. Is there any particular? No, there's. A, I think there's one called No Refunds that's on Netflix. <laughs> and it is, I mean, because all of his stuff is meant to make people leave. <laughs> 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 so like all of, all of the names of his albums are things that imply that you, you can't get your money back, essentially. <laughs> so does, does, does that mean that he does what, uh, as I understand it, I mean, I've listened to and watched a fair amount of his stuff, but Bill Burr 
so it seems that Bill Burr will deliberately lose the audiences because it's no longer a challenge to simply make them laugh. He wants to be able to reel them back in. Is that effectively what Doug does? It's yeah, it's it's precisely that. I mean, seeing Doug Stanhope live is it's it's Bill Burr actually to to the extreme. I mean, to the point where I I can't. It's like watching. It's like magic trick. I mean, it's like watching Andy Kaufman doing his bit where he he does like his like latka character speaking like gibberish to the audience and like bombing and people not realizing it's a character and then going into you know a perfect Elvis a pitch perfect Elvis impersonation having it's like you know and people go crazy it's 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 this thing where you can't believe that he lands the show after how terrible he's (laughs) made it and and it's it's fascinating and Bill Burr's yeah Bill Burr's incredible too I mean though and yeah Bill Burr may be very close to that list as well yeah maria is uh i've i've listened to a lot of her comedy and i (laughs) being i suppose although i i i alternatively love and hate this description in the self-help business Mm -hmm. uh which i i try sort of not to think about much but the i get asked about the secret a lot and Mm -hmm. manifesting things which is not really a focus of mine at all Sure. But Maria has this hilarious bit that I always mention. I'm like, you should listen to Maria Bamford. Like, she talks about the secret. And oh there's this God. bit where she she's talking about being down and out, and her sister is very successful, sort of corporate, yes. super efficient. And Maria has her over at one point, and Maria has put together a vision board, which is like a yes. board. <laughs> yes. And there's a microwave on the board. And her sister goes, a microwave? Really? You want a fucking microwave? That's depressing. I'll buy you a microwave. And then Maria's like, <laughs> bam, manifest. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, so genius. Uh, what, what purchase comes to mind uh, could be recent, but whatever, that has positively impacted your life. Uh, ideally not like a Maserati, but something that's I think on the, on the less expensive side. I would say, this is so, this sounds so stupid and like current and speaking of things not enduring, who, who knows what this will even be, but my, I, I find the Fitbit was helpful for me mm-hmm. <laughs> because it tracks my sleep. And so it it tells me this thing about my sleep, which tells I you how sleep. much you were walking the night before. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I mean, it tells me it not only tell. I don't know if you know about this. It not only tells you, um, wh- you know how you you know wh- how long you slept, but it tells you the quality of sleep during. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, like it, it tells you, you know, you slept technically for eight hours, but you you know you were awake for an hour of that. So it, it's actually quite helpful. I like it. So you use it primarily for your sleep then? I, for my sleep, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I like the steps thing. I like trying to get to 10,000 steps a day. That's helpful. But for the sleep, I mean, because you got to remember, like, I, I've, I've slept over at hospitals, you know, countless times for sleep studies because I have REM behavior disorder. And it's like $3,000 per visit. To I mean, obviously, you know, some of it's insurance, but some of it I have to pay. And, it, it, I mean, this thing basically does a sleep study and it costs a hundred bucks. What, uh, what's, what type of nighttime rituals do you have? I mean, you mentioned easing in instead of crashing into the wall. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, do you have any particular kind of wind down or evening rituals? I try to do there. There's a, actually a good podcast called, uh, not to be mistaken with sleepwalk with me. There's a good podcast called sleep with me. 
<laughs> um, I could go a lot of directions, okay. Yes, and it's this guy named, I think he, he calls himself Scooter. And he... <laughs> Sounds trustworthy. And he, and he, uh, he has like this really uncanny skill of talking in circles and slow and a, circling back to the first topic and then the next topic and then another thing and then a digression and the next thing you know you're asleep i mean it's it's pretty fascinating what he does um I'll have to try and that. Then, um yeah so that that's worth that's worth looking into and then um and then I try to write in my journal. And then I, honestly, the biggest thing is, is, is getting off of social media. It's, you know, getting, getting off of Twitter and Facebook. I think, you know, in relationship to what we were talking about earlier of like, I was saying the thing about Oliver Stone, that he, he joined the army and became, that's how he became self-reliant and how ultimately like everything in your life that you do leads to who you are and what you're able to accomplish. Um, I think that social media is weirdly the exception to that. I think that social media is like this weird kind of looking in the mirror all the time um, thing that is, it's, it's not helpful for, for being productive or, or, or learning. I, I don't I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's true, but that, that's been my feeling lately. I think the the dose makes the poison. Certainly, I mean, I think yes. there's there's a point where you're like, oh, this Tylenol is helping my headache, and then oh, I my stomach lining just fell out of my ass. Or <laughs> and, that's extreme. And I think <laughs> has that ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that that hasn't actually literally happened to me. But there's <laughs> there's definitely a, a point where you know things in excess become their opposite. Uh, what is the on the flip side, uh, the first kind of 60 to 120 minutes of your day look like? I mean, are there any particular rituals that you have in the morning? It's a little bit like memento every day. Um, Inject, like, injecting your wife with insulin over and over again? <laughs> it's just like a lot of times if I'm not focused, um, I will kind of wander and, and, you know, it's all, until I have coffee, forget about it. I'm a heavy coffee drinker. And, um, and if I'm on a pro basically if I'm on a project, if I'm shooting a movie, I have a complete and exact plan for the next day. And if I'm writing a movie, like I said, I, I look and put notes next to my bed, you Mike, wake up, go, go to the coffee shop and write. Um, I think that when I don't have a routine, I'm a mess and I'm not productive and it's not, it's not helpful. Um, so that, so that's what I'd say. It's, it's inconsistent. And the other thing is I travel. I mean, what, with the thank God for jokes show, I toured a hundred cities in wow. a year. And so it's, it's very hard to have rituals when you're going to a hundred cities in a year. Yeah. I wonder if it makes the value of the rituals even greater if you are able to maintain some semblance of routine when touring. Yeah. I don't know. I've never done that. Do you have do you have a favorite venue in the entire United States? If you had to pick one? Oh gosh. There's so many. I mean, the Upper Citizens Brigade Theater in New York City it feels like home because I've been on that stage a lot and the comedy cellar in New York feels similarly. Um I think that in terms of like a pound for pound venue, I think the Chicago Theater is probably your best concert venue in America. Chicago theater seats about 3000 people. And yet as a performer, you feel like 
you're talking to people in your living room. And as an audience member, it feels like you're just, you know, you're just, you're just watching, you know, someone not in your living room, but sort of, you know, in, it feels intimate. So you are, you're a collector of good advice. What is the worst advice that you hear or see being given out often? And that could be in any domain. Could be comedy, could be writing, could be movies, could be completely unrelated, anything. Uh, It's all about, (laughs) you know, it's all about getting your dream, pursuing your dream. Like, I feel like there's something, I, I don't know what the exact advice is that drives me crazy, but I think that there's a cultural thing right now that it, it is kind of irksome, which is that, that people feel like they're like, I, I read it recently in the New York times where someone said, um, I'm forgetting her name who wrote this, but she said, if I had advice for college students, it would be, don't ask, what do I want to be when I grow up? Ask, how can I help or how can I change the world? Or how can I make be of service to other people? And I think that the, the, the kind of like just kind of be whatever you want to be is, is perhaps to be reconsidered by how can I be of service when I'm on the earth for such a short amount of time? Because when, you know, when I do my shows, like it's when, when, when I do my one man shows, for example, Seth Barish and I, we're always talking about what, how is this, how is this story that I'm telling, you know, about, let's say sleepwalk with me. It's a story about, um, it's a story about how I jumped out a second story window while sleepwalking and nearly killed me. I, I was, you know, I, I, I got cut up. I ended up in the, in the emergency room. I was the, the, I, I jumped through a window in the glass, missed my femoral artery by, you know, a centimeter. And, and, and ultimately we had to figure out not how is this show, how is this story about me, but how is it about the audience? And the way that it, we, we discovered it was about the audience is that the, that it, it's a, it, you know, that it's about it's about the catharsis you can experience by sharing something that you're very embarrassed about. In my case, having this life-threatening sleep disorder that I was embarrassed about, I thought people would think I'm crazy. It's about the catharsis of opening up and telling people that and how that can make us feel closer to one another. And so in that sense, this is a roundabout way of saying, I'm always trying to think about how does, how can my, how can what I'm doing, um, be helpful to the audience? How can they go away feeling empowered in their life as opposed to, oh, that was funny, you know, because, because walking away going, oh, that was funny. It's, I don't know. It's, 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 there's something about it that feels like it's a missed opportunity. Well, I, I remember speaking to John Favreau on the podcast about writing and his writing and humor. And he said, I don't, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't aim for funny. I aim for truth. And then yeah. the funny you know, often comes along with it. I think that's absolutely true. There's a, there's a, uh, so on this point, sort of what you can offer of service. So, uh, Brian Koppelman mentioned something, uh, in our text exchange, which was he, meaning you chooses to be kind. It's a conscious part of who he, he is. And I'm always interested in how he consistently thinks of other people in whatever engagement and how going through life that way makes him feel. Can you confirm or deny or elaborate 
on that because it's it's uh, I mean it's I, I think a, an observation worth exploring. I mean, is that a if that is a decision you make, has it always been the case? Is it something that you came to a particular way? I think it, I think that's from my mother. Um, my mother is a very generous person. She's a you know, she's a nurse for her whole career, and then she was a school nurse for a while, um, elementary school. She's uh, she's very Catholic, um, which is not something that I've followed in her footsteps with. But uh, she's yeah, she's just very sweet to everyone. And so I I try to be. I mean, I don't know if it's true. Um, it's nice to hear that someone says that I about me, but I'm, I, I, I try, yeah, I try to be nice to, to everyone I meet. I think it's, it's the right thing to do. I think that, you know, I think that peace, you know, on earth is achieved in a micro sense. I think it, it's peace is achieved through every person who you meet in your day is, is that an opportunity, it's an opportunity to contribute to peace, uh, everywhere. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, I, maybe that's it's naive, but but I that's how that's how that's how I think of it. I don't think it's naive. I mean, I think the the macro is made up of the micro, right? And yeah. That I remember this story I heard. I believe it was from a professor at Stanford named B.J. Fogg, who decided to teach a class as professors at Stanford are allowed to do that he effectively made up out of thin air. And I think it was creating world peace or something like that. Had no idea what the yeah. syllabus or the curriculum would be whatsoever. And then 30 students show up and he tries to figure out what the class is. And what he realized very quickly is that you had students from, say, Israel, Palestine, all over the place. No one could even agree on what world peace meant. Like, what does world mm, peace look yeah. like? So he said, okay, sure. since we can't agree on world peace, though, and this was the interesting part, he said, let us try to agree on what the antecedents to world oh, peace would be. Like, smart. what are the constituent parts that might make up world peace? Let's start to agree on some of the in- ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then he had them work on projects focused on those common ingredients. So it's like, I, I, and I do feel like to take something like peace and make it actionable by necessity, you're going to bring it down to the micro. Otherwise, it's just not actionable. It's too abstract. Yeah, I hope. That, by the way, I'm I, I'm fearing as I'm saying this, like that someone's listening to this, going, "Well, I met Mike Birbiglia, and he's an asshole." <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's, the worst. it's also the, the I have that with Q and As. Like a lot of times with touring with Don't Think Twice, people that will do Q and As, and I'll be like 20 minutes into it, and it'll it'll hit me like a ton of bricks, like. What if the people in the audience didn't like the movie? Now they're listening to someone babble on about how they made the thing that they don't even like. <laughs> well, like, I, can you imagine a worse fate than listening to someone talk about a thing that they, that you don't even like? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I have to say, and this is not going to get a lot of sympathy from most people listening to this, but I have a lot more empathy for people in the public light than I did say 10 years ago because you see like you you wonder like I wonder if that guy thinks I'm a total dick but it just so happens like your cat got run over by a car and like your kid pissed on your trousers before you had to go to an important meeting and then your wife called and was really upset and then some guy dropped your coffee on the floor and you're just in a shitty mood and that person happens to come up to you like as you're running to the gate to catch a flight that you're going to miss. And yeah. they have a 30-second exposure to you in a really rare 
off moment and they're like, wow, that guy is an asshole. And like, or you literally just, or you literally just sprain your wrist, like grabbing for a suitcase. I had that happen on this last trip. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, and then someone, someone comes up to you right at that moment is like, Hey, I'm a big fan. I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm, this is a really strange thing to say. I'm in a lot of pain right now. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, yeah, I met that guy. He made up the most ridiculous story. (laughs) He blamed it on his wrist. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I mean, and it's, it's, I mean, I had this experience yesterday, uh, which was hilarious and infuriating at the same time. This is yet another reason to stay off of social media. And I saw this guy who's, suppose you would call him a journalist or a, a sort of a media producer who's who'd been pinging me via text message for a while i'd been traveling out of the country this and that to like get together have drinks and like hey buddy how's it going all this and i guess i didn't reply to them and so his tweet was you know tim ferris is like an arrogant self-centered ass but it doesn't mean you can't learn lessons from him and i was like oh so this is what happens when i I'm out of the country for two months and miss someone's uh, text. Like they assume, uh, they assume malice. So the, I remember a piece of advice I was given or, or read at some point, I mixed those up was, you know, never, never attribute. And I've modified it a bit, but like never attribute to malice, what you can attribute to incompetence. Now, the way I've modified that is never attribute to malice, what you can attribute to incompetence or busyness. Oh, busyness, yeah. Right? It's just like you don't know what battle someone else is fighting. Like they might come off as a dick and it's like, I'm not going to give away too much in the movie, but it's like something catastrophic could have happened that they're not being open about because they don't want to be open about it. And, you know, just assume that it's not a personal attack. Uh, But I'm getting up on a soapbox. Let me chill myself out. Uh, I think that's, that's good advice. Uh, what is the best me- you've done? You said a hundred, hundred cities, right? Is there, yeah. is, do you have a favorite meal that comes to mind and maybe it's pizza could be, but is there, yeah. is there a favorite meal or drink of yours that comes to mind? I think that some, some combination of like, gr- I love great macaroni and cheese. Like I, like, like I, like I love going to like the fanciest restaurant you can imagine and just ordering macaroni and cheese or like ordering the hamburger. Like I always, I always find that like, like if you go to some place that's some, you know, 50 bucks a plate or something like that, like sure you can order the chicken or the steak or whatever, but man, can they make a hamburger? (laughs) Now, are you deliberately, is that for your joy or is it to like uh, no, like I'm not remotely trying, flog I'm not the kitchen. Blank, no, I'm not trying to blank the system. It, I think so. You're not a, asking for I, like super well done because I know that makes chefs completely insane. No, no, no. I think it's a cuisine loophole. I think that it's. I think it's. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great secret in cuisine, which is that you to order the kind of inexpensive pedestrian item on a really expensive fancy menu is more often than not amazing like to go to a town to go to a fancy restaurant if you like if you're in a fancy restaurant and for whatever reason like there's peanut butter and jelly on the menu order the peanut butter and jelly because those people aren't fucking around (laughs) (laughs) oh god i love it no that's good advice i remember i i had two different pieces of advice from two very good chefs. So one said, if you go out to a restaurant, never have the roast chicken because you can always make roast yes, chicken at home. I think that's smart. Like you can always make it at home. But I had someone else say, if you can get roast chicken on the menu at a fancy restaurant, get the roast chicken oh, because yeah. 
everyone can make it at home. You think you know roast chicken. Oh, yeah. So maybe along the lines of the PB&J. So if, if you... <laughs> maybe it's order the PB&J. If you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? It would say... I put it like in Times Square and it would say, none of these companies care about you. Ooh, I like it. Because I think that that's, that that's one of the things that I feel like I've learned over the years, which is like that, that we've we've come to trust corporations in a certain sense. And we, we forget the fact that they actually have no vested interest in us other than our money, mm. um, uh, which is, you know, and it, which, which harkens back to the thing I was saying about gatekeepers, which is like, you know, people always say to me like, Hey, <laughs> I have, I have a, a very much of a niche career. I have a career where if people know my work more often than not, they're like, Oh, that's, that's great. I'm a huge fan. This is great what you do. And, but most people don't know who I am. It's, it's the, the, the definition of niche, you know, um, I don't get stopped on the street almost ever, which is great. It's phenomenal. Um, and so, and, and so in relation to that is I, I do things that are self-produced, you know, I'm a producer on my movies. I'm a producer on my one man shows. I produce my tours. It's all in house. And I try not to to kind of bow to the gatekeepers of show business because I, they don't care about me. I mean, they really don't like they, they, the, the, the networks and the studios, all they care about is whether or not my movie or my TV show or whatever it would be would make them money. But, but so why would I try to, why would I try to please those people? I, the people I'm trying to please is my audience. They're the people who who buy my albums or buy you know who go buy tick buy movie tickets? Those are the people I care about. Those are the people I'm making the movies for. So I would say. So my billboard is these these companies don't care about you. <laughs> Do you have any other rules uh, that you've developed for the? I was going to say the business side of the art that you're involved with, uh, but just in terms of managing your life and career. Are there any other rules you've set for yourself that have helped you to have the success and longevity that you've had? I think if I, I think my advice is just to, to try to figure out what what this what they do well in this kind of the system, the studio system, the, the network system, and just pull it out and replicate the parts that you think work and and then do the rest yourself so so like in other words i when my first off-broadway show was sleepwalk with me and it was very much like by the book and it was you, you know like it was it was produced in this way that you know it was the off-broadway like system like it was you know it had a you know a general manager, general management company that took such and such a fee. And it had, you know, this many people who are on the payroll and all this kind of stuff. And my agent and I, after the fact, because the, the, the show, even though it was like this big success and it ran for eight months, the show technically, this is a very common thing in Hollywood. It's like, um, it lost money technically. Right. Like it wasn't like the, the, I guess the most famous story of this is the Simpsons, like the Simpsons, franchise i don't know if this is true still but like for a few years ago it was, it was like it was not in profit 
Have you ever heard that story? Oh, I haven't heard the story of The Simpsons, but I've read some some articles on Hollywood accounting. And so Hollywood <laughs> accounting is crazy. It's, it's completely bonkers. I mean, it's 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 on par with like, wait, I'm making this up. I don't know if this is accurate, so don't don't sue me, GM. But when people are like, oh yeah, GM paid no taxes last year, or like, you know, Apple yeah. paid no taxes last year, and you're like, what? And uh, it's it's absolutely on par. You're like, oh, the movie grossed a billion dollars, but no one saw any back end participation mysteriously for these various reasons that are detailed in this article. But no, I haven't heard the Simpsons example. But yeah, so yeah, and so and so and so like. You know, another example is like my my last movie, Sleepwalk with Me. I, I won't sort of name the names involved, but like it didn't, it didn't technic it didn't technically make money, even though it did like two and a quarter at the box office, which is a lot for a small film that was made for a million dollars. And then it did, you know, probably a million, whatever, maybe more, digitally on Netflix and iTunes and all these things. And so it may, it quote unquote made like three, somewhere between three to $5 million. We made it for a million dollars budget, which is like nothing in the world of independent film. Yeah. Super budget. And the, and the movie didn't make money <laughs> and it doesn't, I mean, I'm trying not to curse. It doesn't fucking make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. And so this time around I was like, all right, well, I'm going to cut out all the people who, charged the movie so to speak and ha be became like a line item in the budget for the marketing and the distribution of the movie and i'm just gonna do it myself so like don't think twice is essentially self-distributed in cooperation with this company the film arcade which is like a small distribution company that i basically told my story to and we're like well let's build this from scratch i'll go from town to town i'll go to 30 cities um and i'll hand deliver this movie. And so like this summer, my, my whole summer has been me going town to town, showing sneak previews of the movie and then doing a free improv workshop for uh, improv theaters in that town. So we're going to IO in Chicago and UCB in New York and the Torch Theater in Phoenix and the, you know, all of the Planet Ant Theater in, uh, in Detroit, which is where Keegan Michael Key started. And we're doing these free workshops just as a, like an act of goodwill, because basically we, we thought like, well, why don't we, instead of like buying a ton of TV ads and this and that, all the traditional marketing, why don't we spend that money just, just having me be a walking billboard for the movie and go town to town and, and spread goodwill. Say, hey, we're going to do free improv workshops. We're going to do, we're going to give out free tickets to local improv theaters and, and we're going to do Q and A's. And I, so anyway, so to get back to what you're saying in a business sense, I would say steal the ideas that corporations use that work and then fill in the rest yourself. Yeah. Steal the thunder from the gods. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she doesn't actually belong to them anyway. In a lot of <laughs> senses. I'm really excited about uh, that. I'm, I'm continually excited about this type of experiment. And particularly given my experience with the podcast, which after many, many years is really the first, in a sense, aside from the blog, and so on, the first free agent enterprise that I've had complete unilateral creative control over. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the democratization of podcasts has been incredible for radio. Oh, it's so it's just such a boon and such a joy. And for that reason, I mean, I'm going to be experimenting with a lot of different approaches with uh, publishing as it relates to books and otherwise 
because every time I have in the past let someone pay for something, which is usually bloated in, yeah. some, in some capacity, yeah, as you absolutely. mentioned. Yep. You, well, the publisher, you, whole publishing industry is bloated. Yeah, you, you, will not, you will not have the control of the protections that you would want uh, as, as a doer. So how can people see the film? And of course, it's kind of contingent, I suppose, upon when people are hearing this. But what yes. would you, how would you like people to check it out? And I, I have really been enjoying it. Uh, Chris Saka loved it. I've heard uh, great things uh, from a number of different people, and I certainly recommend people check it out. But where can they where can they learn more and see more? They can. There's there's a site called Don't Think uh, Don't Think Twice Movie dot com uh, at uh, the Twitter handle at Don't Think. My my Twitter handle is at Burbigs B I R B I G S, um, and you can see that like go, you know I'm traveling around the country to like 30 cities. It's gonna, with people's help, don't think twice, we'll get into, you know, three to 500, you know, theaters across the country and, and maybe more. And it's, and it, but it's entirely contingent on the people listening uh, to this. Like we, like, and, and I, I would just, I, I'm at Nantucket Film Festival right now and there's great movies. There's this documentary called Tickle that's phenomenal. Um, there's uh, this movie called, uh, other people that uh, Chris Kelly made. There's the Captain Fantastic, which I was telling you about. Um, there's a Norman Lear documentary. There's so many great independent films. And what I urge people to do is go to the theaters, go to your local cinema and see small films that, you know, read a few reviews, you know, go to the ones that you think might work for you. But um, it really does help for for there to be more of them like no one's getting rich on independent film but if but if the movie makes a few million dollars i'll get to make another movie and i'll put my heart and soul into it and so that's that's what i would ask and the the just for people who are wondering i mean i obviously i shouldn't say obviously but i'll say those people who've been listening to me or following me long enough know this that i i take endorsing things very very seriously i don't it's very easy to destroy a reputation that takes a long time to build and i feel sure. very comfortable recommending this movie it's uh uh when i was watching it earlier with cal at one point a few minutes into it he said wait a second is this documentary or script <laughs> and yeah. and th i mean that is just about the highest compliment as it relates to acting that appears completely natural and I, I thought to myself, wow, like that is a very rare comment. And this is coming from someone who's had a lot of immersion in the arts and entertainment also. That's so, a huge compliment. Thank you. Yeah, so everybody definitely check it out. And I will put all of the links in the show notes as usual at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. One last question, sure. uh, actually two last questions. This one is, what is the best or most worthwhile investment you've ever made? That could be time, money, energy, and just as an example to buy a little bit of time. So Amelia Boone, who's been on the podcast, the, she's won the world's toughest mutter three times and is the most successful female obstacle course racer in the world. Uh, her answer was, to me, paying her first $450 entrance fee, which was a stretch at the time for world's toughest mutter. So it seemed wow. like a huge stretch, but it completely set her on... Uh, pun intended, this course in her life. I mean, she's also a power attorney at Apple and is just a complete machine. But um, what would you what would you offer as your answer to that? I would say spend 15 bucks on a yoga class. 
<laughs> I started doing yoga two years ago, and I, I think that I, if I hadn't started, I, I feel like my body would have broken down completely, and I'd be, you know, in a sling. Like I, I feel in my wife, my wife, my wife couldn't convince me to do yoga after years of telling me that I should do yoga, um, which is, um, you know, it's hilarious if you people don't have the visual picture of me, but like the or they might, but. You know, you wouldn't think of me as someone who does yoga, and I certainly don't do it well. But but it is uh, if you can find a good place for beginners, oh my god, it's I find it to be completely uh, help. It's very helpful for being productive and being healthy. And you are, I think people are as old as their joints feel. So if you sit down a lot, <laughs> it is good to stretch. And uh, I've been doing a lot of acro yoga for the last two years. And I've, I've, my hips and back have never felt better. Oh, that's great. The, uh, so I would encourage people to also, if, if, if for whatever reason you can't manage to get tickets to stand-up comedy by... Uh, Mr. Burbiggs, if you see him in line for a yoga class and want to get some indirect comedy by watching his <laughs> yes. downward dog and cobra poses, <laughs> then uh, that is that is much like the, the culinary loophole we talked about earlier. I'll, I'll tell you, this is going to sound like I'm kissing up, but my wife urged me to wedge this in somehow, which is the if the people just listen to the podcast and they don't have your book, uh, get your uh, work for our work week. Your, I believe your first book. That's um, the first book, which is mm-hmm. just how I was introduced to it. Your work is um, it, because I I have a completely different outlook on vacation now. Um, mm. The way that you talk about how the like essentially we're working these eight eighty hour weeks, let's say, for this pie in the sky idea of retirement at the end of our lives that God knows what the hell that even is anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and live, that, live that retirement in fits and spurts in the middle of your life so you understand the perspective of what that even is. And because of that, my wife and I took a vacation to Laguna Beach where I shut off my computer for five days at the beginning of June. And it's literally because of your book. Well, thank you for sharing that. That makes, uh, that makes, my, makes my day. And uh, Laguna Beach is a great choice. That's a beautiful spot. <laughs> was, I looked. I, ser- I searched all over it. That's yeah. That's uh, I'm I'm a, I'm an amateur travel agent. <laughs> yeah. The uh, for those people who haven't read the book, yeah. The, the the balloon payment at the end for the deferred life plan is far from guaranteed. Uh, far from guaranteed. Far yeah. from guaranteed. So it's it's good to good to break up the work with many retirements for sure. Is there any ask or request uh, as we wrap up? Um, any any parting comments or asks or requests for my audience? No, just that you know, follow you know, follow the movie on uh, don't think at don't think movie on Twitter or follow me at Burbigs on Twitter and and so and if you you know, tr- like trust me that the movie's really good and I I think you'll laugh and I think you might cry, which is which for you know take someone on a date take take a few of your friends and. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it, there's a lot of love that went into making something that a lot of people so far have liked. And so, yeah, it would just mean a lot to me. Yeah. And it also, and it also supports an ecosystem of creators creating, uh, which, so. which, uh, 
I'm extremely passionate about and I think pretty well informed regarding. And I would just tell people, you know, every time I have to or choose to review something, whether it's a book or a movie or anything else, um, right before an interview, I'm always nervous and I'm just like, oh God, like, am I going to have to tap dance around the fact that I didn't like something by yeah, like uh, the, the glaring omission of mentioning it or anything like that? And within five minutes of putting this on, I was like, oh, thank fucking God. Okay, I don't have to, I yeah. don't have to, I don't have to deal with any of that. It was such a wash of relief. Um, so I, I do encourage people to check it out. And Mike, I know you got a lot going on right now. You are, you are juggling the, all of the activities that go with taking matters into your own hands with a creative <laughs> endeavor like this. Uh, and so I, I, uh, certainly send good vibes to you for the Thank endurance, you. the endurance and courage and strength that you will need on the road. Uh, and, uh, this is great fun. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. And, and as a disclaimer to anybody who's listening to this and going like, but I don't even like Mike Birbiglia's comedy. Why am I listening to him talk about it? Just know on a lot of days, I don't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I might be wrong about everything I've just said, but I'm just trying my best like anybody else. It's <laughs> all we can ask, man. Yeah. Everybody's just trying to get by one day at a yes. time. Uh, Mike, well, best best of luck with everything. And uh, to everyone listening, as always, I'll mention it again. You can find links to everything, including the movie, including social, including books and DVDs and so on that came up in the show notes, as well as those notes for every other episode at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>